All right, let's open with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, picking back up in Proverbs chapter 17, we are just about to finish out this section that we've been in back at chapter 15, verse 1. We started this part. Wait a minute, do I have that right? Yeah. Yes. So, looks like we started part three there, there. And then, okay, this section, Advice to a Wise Son, is 1520 through 1724. So, as you can tell, these are just loose, loose demarcations of category that are being used by the commentators to give us just a sense of cohesion section to section. But it's really pretty soft, and it's really pretty arguable in many cases if there's a true division there or not. Okay, so at 1717, just to give us a little bit of a running start, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. So we had an opportunity last week to meditate on the nature of true friendship and true brotherhood. And it's not at all. I mean, this is the saddest thing. The world has forgotten what it is to have true friendships. And the world has forgotten what it is to have true brotherhoods. And you can see this because any time there is anything that exhibits, uh, particularly for males, like male and male close friendship, immediately the world comes in and says, oh, they must be closeted homosexuals or something. It's just the world's way, Satan's way, of trying to destroy the bond of friendship and the bond of, the bond of brotherhood, which is essential, and essential for the cohesion of a society, essential for the cohesion of a church, essential for all things is this ability, in particular for males as heads of a household, to be able to have friendships and be willing to exhibit that greatest love that Jesus says, that greatest love has no other than this, that one would lay down his life for his brother. That's the brotherly bond. In Greek, there's even a uh, specific word for this. The, it's word from which we get Philadelphia, this brotherly love this camaraderie, and this willingness to lay down one's life for another. One of the things that really you know, is indicative of the illness of our society, who would you lay your life down for? Who would lay down their life for you? When, when tyranny comes in crass and terrible forms, where's the cohesion? Where's the unity? So to regain that, in the right-hand kingdom, to regain that within the church is paramount. And so to really study and pay attention to these verses and to the biblical stories that illustrate these bonds of friendship and brotherhood of the utmost importance. Now, I've been focusing on males as the head of the family, but obviously this trickles down through all, her member, through all the members of the family, through all the members of the church. But a friend loves at all times, good times and bad times. A brother is born for adversity. They're even more specifically for the difficult times. 
All right, then passing on to 18, one who lacks sense gives a pledge and puts up security in the presence of his neighbor. And we used the study note last week, so literally clasps hands as when confirming a deal. So hastily made promises and trapped the foolish who commit themselves to vows they have neither the ability nor determination to keep. That is a fair summary there. As Jesus would say, simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. And nation in this proverb is also that recurring idea of slow down. Slow down and pay attention to what you're doing, what you're agreeing to, what you're saying. All of that is of the utmost importance. Okay, 19. Whoever loves transgression loves strife. So sin and drama go hand in hand, do they not? I mean, as soon as you have drama, you have sin. And when you have sin, more often than not, you have drama or strife, the biblical word. So this idea is important that we make a connection between strife and people who are continuously in strife, continuously engaged in drama and sin, and obviously this put in a negative light, put as it is, such that we turn away from it. So whoever loves transgression loves strife. He who makes his door high seeks destruction. And Obviously, that's going to be a challenging phrase. What on earth does it mean? If you just glance at the study note, and then I'll share with you what the commentary says, uh, makes his door high, difficult and disputed phrase, may mean that the one who builds a high and impressive fortress gate invites an attack. It may also condemn those who raise the quote-unquote door of their mouth in boasting and pride. And I'll just give you the flavor here for this verse 19 in the commentary. This verse notes that those caught up in sin enjoy seeing and promoting strife. The meaning of the second line is disputed. The translation above takes it as a description of a bellicose man who builds his gate high as a defensive fortification, like a tower built on top of an ancient city wall in anticipation of conflict. His excessive defensiveness invites attack by those who are just as contentious as he who builds the lofty means of self-protection. All right, so what would that indicate? If, even if we don't have it precisely right, I mean, I think I'm not trying to cast doubt on any of what I've just read, but even if we don't have it precisely right, we don't need it to be precisely right to get the gist. And the gist is this kind of idea of sin, strife, arrogance, and contention all go together. And they all ultimately lead in one's destruction. So, obviously the Holy Spirit enlightening us toward these things that we might avoid them and not do them ourselves. So instead of love transgression, love righteousness. That righteousness credited to us freely in Christ Jesus, that new righteousness, that new obedience worked in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Love righteousness. Instead of strife, love peace. Instead of setting your 
door high, again, if this is an indication of like pride and like inviting aggression, set your door low. Be humble. Be slow to anger, quick to forgive. One path leads to destruction, the other to blessing. I'll write a little further and then I'll pause and see if you have any thoughts. 20. A man of crooked heart does not discover good, and one with a dishonest tongue falls into calamity. So, a crooked heart obviously is the antithesis of having a clean and straight heart given to us by Christ Jesus. A crooked heart, I suppose we could put a little flesh on these bones and even say like a defiled conscience. That wouldn't be a bad subcategory. Uh, does not discover good. And isn't that kind of true? Uh, you get this sense that apart from faith, there are no good works, or everything without faith is sin. As Christ says, apart from me, you can do nothing. I am the vine, you are the branches. Only the branches that abide in the vine bear much fruit. So there's this idea that if one is separated from Christ and of crooked heart, even the good you think you have isn't in fact good. It's hollowed out for you. So the good, the things that are objectively good, even of creation, that are God's good gifts, the sun rising and shining upon you, the rain bringing growth to the fields, the food placed upon your table, all of these objectively good things, what are they to a wicked man, a man of crooked heart? Things that if he can capitalize for his own greed, he will. If he can exploit them or use them to exploit others, he will. The food, the very food and gift of God that he eats is but fuel for his depravity and his wickedness. All the gifts he he receives from God, he uses as means not unto good, but as means used unto evil ends. So I think that you can meditate on this and get a whole bunch of scriptural verses cohering to this idea that a man of crooked heart does not discover good. So what would it be to have a straight heart? In the first place, it would be to confess against yourself. And that in and of itself is a gift of God, but it's to confess against yourself with the straight line of God's word, have the straight heart that says, this is evil, and it's evil within me, and I confess it, and I crucify it, and I desire to be absolved. I want to do better, and to receive that absolution whereby God creates in you a clean heart, a straight heart, a right heart, and then to maintain and guard that within yourself. That's, you'll hear that in the Old Testament reading today, back from Proverbs 4, the idea of paying attention to your heart, guarding your heart, etc. All right, and then, of course, we just move from the heart to the lips, very common biblical move. And a dishonest tongue falls into calamity. So, kind of an irony there that the dishonest tongue is meant to cause others to fall into calamity. That's why you're being dishonest. Just try to gain some advantage. And by doing so, you end up losing your advantage. Because even though a dishonest tongue may profit in the short term, hello, there's a God. And he's watching and he's not going to let you get away with it. <laughs> so, that's the... That's the wisdom of walking in the light of the counsel of God to recognize that he's there. 
He's watching you, and if you think you can get away with it, why even try? You're not going to get away with it, because he sees. And then to not be distressed or lose heart when other people do wicked and seem to profit in that wickedness, seem to profit through their lies. All you have to say is, I know their time's coming, and I wouldn't trade places with them for anything. All right, let me pause there. I feel like I've already done a lot of talking. Yep, there's a hand in the back. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Chris. Um, Pastor, this is kind of off the subject, but in a sense, if you look at the history of the nation Israel, especially because I have one of these old charts in an old Bible that I have, that shows that the closer the nation was to God and following commands, his commands, mm-hmm. the more blessings they received. And then it was a short generation or two, they were falling away again, and either they were cast off into captivity someplace or some other bad thing was happening. Uh, and it, it went on like this for uh, quite a while. And if you look at our own history, in a sense, the closer we were to God, maybe not as a total nation, but people in it, we we did have some times of blessings. And and now it seems that they're being removed or we don't have them anymore somehow. If you could comment, is that kind of what this is talking about here? Maybe on a larger scale? Yeah, I think it's a great meditation, a great application. If you look at this corporately in terms of a nation or a people, you know, we can, we can have all the affluence in the world. We can be the wealthiest country and the wealthiest people who have ever existed and be absolutely miserable. And that seems to be the case when you look at statistics of antidepressant use, statistics of divorce, statistics of anxiety, de- depression, despair. I mean, it's just off the charts. So it's as if, I think Peter Crave, the philosopher who was at Boston College, said, it's as if we've exchanged all of our physical suffering for spiritual suffering. You know, if you, if you get a headache, you just go have a Tylenol. But that relief, that quick, easy relief of everything that ails you has its cost on the other side of the equation, which is in your soul. You don't learn how to deal with anything, any adversity, not even a headache. It's not long before you're medicating yourself to the hilt over every little thing and or blaming everyone else for any amount of suffering that you incur because you're completely incapable of dealing with the smallest physical suffering. That has an easy fix. So you just assume that the rest of life should work that way and it poisons your thoughts on the other side of the equation, as I said a moment ago. That's some of what we're seeing. I think God's judgment is upon our nation. I think we're seeing the beginning of it. Um, Judgment always begins first with the house of the Lord. And that's what we're seeing. Um, Luther frequently comments, and he wasn't alone in this, that God's judgment ever since Islam was invented by Muhammad and the demons, that apostasy is followed by Islam. So we'll see if that's the case, but it already looks to be in Europe. So we'll see if that becomes the case over here. Um, and if not, I mean, big deal. Then the, this pattern noted 500 years ago is broken. But who cares? Um, it may just be that we revert to pure paganism and, and misery. 
but God will, you know, God will support his church. In many ways, I think, and I don't want to get off on this whole sermon, but in many ways, we're, our, our time and place as God's people is analogous to and will become increasingly analogous to the captives that were swept up, swept up into Babylon. So you find yourself in a place that's just fully paganized, and you've got to somehow be a Christian in that context, where very often just living means already uh, you're not living the way a Christian would ideally and objectively. What, what would be a concrete example of that? In our culture, like you cannot avoid usury. If you're going to be in America in the year of our Lord 2023, there's usury everywhere. It's built in and baked into everything. Do you have a mortgage? You're in the system of usury. You, I mean, you have a credit card? <laughs> so it's one, of these, it's one of these things where you simply cannot extricate yourself from certain societal situations. You cannot get out of Babylon. God's promise to us in that case is not, oh, it's okay. God's promise to us in that case is, I will not reckon your sins against you. I will not reckon these things against you. So, yeah, I think, um, I think that's in, I mean, it seems to be where we are as a people. And obviously we've got leaders that are filled with crooked hearts. Dishonest tongues is like all you hear, all you see. It's just wild. And that's the idea of just living not by lies, that great line. So to practice the truth and speak the truth and be willing to pay the consequence for the truth and to know that God, I mean, to have a bigger... So the pro- world's problem is that it thinks that this world is all that exists. So it lives for this world. It lives for this life. Every greedy guy in a white collar living in a high-rise lives for himself. Maybe lives for his children. It's as Christians, we're called to see the world as it really is, which is very different. This life is tiny. This life means nothing. As some of the saints have said, this, this, night is even at its wor- this life, even at its worst, is like a night in a really bad hotel. <laughs> so it's over, it's over and done with in the blink of an eye. Our hymn that he tells us that. We fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. Great line. Great line. We're here, we think we're of substance, we're gone, just like the grass. So, to realize what life is, and then to really like have an investment strategy, <laughs> is to full-on invest for that life which is to come. To full-on live for the future. To full-on live for Christ's return. That's, that's the wisest we can be. That's the best we can do. And what that means in the here and now is to not worry when the world hates us or punishes us or whatever else. Um, don't let the devil get you down. Don't let him give you a crooked heart and make you embrace it. Confess and have your heart cleaned and straightened by the Lord over and over and over again. Do not give, over, give yourself over to a dishonest tongue. Just don't say, hey, everybody else lies. I got to lie. Lying is part of life. Just don't do it. Be quiet. Don't let your tongue move. It's better than lying. Yeah, so these are the admonitions. Ways I think we could think about this in our culture. Please. Just to continue what Bob said, I was thinking of the song America the Beautiful, God shed his grace on thee and crowned thy good with brotherhood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was also thinking of... Um,
Oh, yeah. Band of Brothers. And that Henry V speech where that Band of Brothers title comes from mm -hmm. with the soldiers in World War II and the band of friendship mm -hmm. that they had. Absolutely. Absolutely. I can speak to the former more than I can speak to the latter. Um, that's one thing that Peter Jackson got wrong in the movies. The movies are great. They're great fun. I mean, they're generally good entertainment. There's a few bad parts. I don't like Legolas surfing on his shield, but whatever. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that more deeply that Peter Jackson gets wrong is he doesn't understand the philosophy. He doesn't understand that Tolkien's after exhibiting masculinity and male friendships all the way throughout. So male archetypes, male leadership, male friendship. You know, in a character like Aragorn, you have extreme harshness and tenderness. Same with Gandalf. You have friendships that are deeper than the current episode, whatever that episode is, or whatever the current, even if there's a disagreement, you have relationships, friendships that are deeper than that. Um, and then, of course, the master uh, class in, in friendship is... Uh, Samwise and Frodo, isn't it? So the whole thing's a study of male friendships and loyalty and uh, bearing each other's burdens. So yeah, if, you haven't read, uh, if you haven't read Lord of the Rings, you should. If you haven't read it in a long time, you should. And you have my permission to skip through the 15-page descriptions of the environment they're in. <laughs> the landscape and weather kind of trees. Because that does get a little... Well, I don't know. Please. Um, but don't watch The Rings of Power on Amazon. It sucks. Oh, yeah. 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 I watched um, a couple episodes of that. Yeah, I didn't even. I just saw the previews, and I said, okay, I've seen as much as I need to see. Wisdom attend. <laughs> yeah. That's but good. I have a couple comments. No. One is silly, and the other maybe less so. The first one is it struck me in the the passage that said the one who loves I think the way you put it is the one who loves sin loves drama Yeah, uh, I'm struck by how much we love reality TV mm -hmm. right you know shows like The Bachelor or whatever where the whole point is for people to have sex and get mad at each other yeah right yeah, yeah. Or, or whatever it is I mean you know I think there are other kinds of reality TV shows where it's, shows where it's a different kind of sin and drama that's involved mm. people betray they make coalitions and betray each other yeah. and it's all wonderful we love watching that yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's a great observation I think it's absolutely <laughs> true yeah I mean it's kind of an awful commentary on our Civilization, I think that those are really popular shows. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely right. Now, for the next one, I want to confess something, and maybe you can absolve me afterwards. Okay. But when you mentioned that apostasy leads to Islam, I was thinking, just for a moment, I thought it almost would be worth it just to see Richard Dawkins murdered by the, by the Muslims. <laughs> oh, goodness. And that's a horrible thing, right? Uh, right. What I, that's a sinful thought in me. And, I, and I'm wondering, okay, now you said a, a person with a straight mind admits his, his <laughs> sins. So do I have a straight mind or a crooked mind? Because on the one hand, I admit that I did have that thought for half a, well, probably for even a little longer than half a second. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I admitted it. Am I straight or what's the story? We hope you're straight. The sinful flesh is uh, at work in us, right? So, but if we agree with the law that it is good, it's no longer I who sin, but sin that dwells in me. And we crucify that and put that to death and 
and trust that Christ will save us from these bodies of death. So I think the way you parse that out is exactly right. I mean, it would there's a part of us that would love to see just desserts and maybe just desserts in the extreme. Uh, we have to commend that into God's hands and just say his justice will be done and that way we won't get too uh, overly bloodthirsty about it. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, that is uh, a lot of the illusion and deception of our time is that money is all you need and money will keep us secure and it doesn't matter how divided we get or how weak we are in terms of principles or how far away from God. As long as we've got enough money, no other country is going to be able to hurt us, no harm is going to befall us. And that's the kind of arrogance that God loves to topple. It's the kind of arrogance that you can see him toppling over and over again in the Old Testament scriptures takes nations at the height of their at the height of their power and wealth and makes it go away overnight. Do you have a follow up? Sure. Just one other thing. I should say I really pray that Richard Dawkins becomes a Christian. There you go. Good. For the right. record. I don't really want him to be killed by for the record. by Muslims. Right. Is he the flying spaghetti monster guy or is that somebody I think else? He, he, just... I, I'm I'm not sure he invented the flying spaghetti monster, but he certainly is a big fan of that kind of argument. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it'd be great if, at the last judgment, God is just a giant flying spaghetti monster for him, and why not? Okay. Well, let's uh, finish this section out. Twenty-one. He who sires a fool gets himself sorrow. And the father of a fool has no joy. So, as uh, fathers, what does this inspire you to do? Don't sire a fool. (laughs) Don't raise your son to be a fool. Don't allow him to be a fool. And And of course here, ultimately, a fool is an unbeliever. We don't want this for any of our children, especially father and sons here in view. So to raise our children in the way they should go, to raise them in the fear of the Lord, to speak the truth to them. And of course, in siring a fool, you know, you just, you, all you do is get for yourself sorrow down the road. The father of a fool has no joy. So just parallel thoughts there. 22, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Now, there's times where we experience both. But we have a lot more power, I think, again, given to us by Christ, by the Holy Spirit. We have a lot more power over these things and control over these things than the world would have us admit. You know, the world loves to have us all in this victim mentality, and you can't get yourself out, and it's perpetually worse and worse for you. You have to buy our product or our medication or, you know, otherwise open your wallet unto us to try to get yourself out. But here a joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. A lot of my preaching today is going to be on that sort of returning to a joyful heart. And there are some very practical ways we can go about that. As Christians, the Psalms are filled with examples. I mean, if we were praying the Psalms faithfully, I wouldn't have to say these things. If we were praying the Psalms faithfully, as soon as I said them, you'd recognize them to be true. Because the Psalms themselves embed in us this, okay, everything's wretched, everything's terrible, we can acknowledge that, we can confess that to God, we can pray, we can even be, you know, irritated and angry. But then what do we do? 
we remember the Lord's blessings, past and present and what he's promised for the future. We give thanks to him for what we do have. And what we do have is, of course, infinitely greater than what we don't have. Because we have salvation, we have the forgiveness of sins, we have Christ Jesus, we have all his gifts, we have the Holy Christian Church, and on and on. More to come in the, the sermon. But all of that is a very practical way where you can turn, you, you know, you can turn away, you can control the outcome of your heart a lot more than you think you can, a lot more than the world tells you you can. So if you have a crushed spirit, if you're dried up in the bones, you're probably not here. But even if you are here and that is the case for you, there are ways to use the tools, use the gifts that God has given you to, to receive a joyful heart within. Joyful heart is good medicine to you, good medicine to other people. It's okay to laugh. It's okay to joke around. If we think that it's the gallows all around us, let's have some gallows humor. So I, I think that all of that's, um, that's well and good. We remember the hilarity of a world who froths and foams and glares and snarls threatening us with the greatest power it can possibly wield, which is the power of death. And we can giggle a little if we need to, is that the extent of your powers, little one? Because Christ has overcome death. Christ has that victory. What can the world do to you, in fact? So to be encouraged in that and be joyful in that and let the doom and gloom kind of... I mean, the doom and gloom is put there by the world to, and by the devil, of course, all his minions orchestrating it, to try to get you to this place of despondency and despair. Um, the way to heal that is just to laugh. Because it's all this, it's, it's all like the, the Wizard of Oz. You know, all the doom and gloom and what you find out in the end is it's just a weak old man in the closet. That's really all the devil's power is. It's just impotence. And we, um, we just see him storming and thrashing about. But let's not lose, lose sight of the fact that he's thrashing around in death throes. Because the cross has been, you know, like a, you ever notice how the cross is like a sword? That cross has been stuck through the dragon's heart and the dragon's thrashing around. That sword has cut off the serpent's head and the serpent's thrashing around. The victory's won on the cross already. It's just we're in the death throes. The death throes are always the worst. Chaotic, giving everything he's got, but it's already done. So that's the other thing we can do is just not take it all so seriously. We have victory in Christ. We have rejoicing in him. So, yeah, I I would take that from this too, this idea of... uh, I mean, even going back to 21. He who sires a fool gets in himself sorrow. And the father of a fool has no joy. You know, if your son, if your daughter, if your grandchildren exhibit godly wisdom, rejoice in that. Rejoice in the small things. Have joy in the small things. A joyful heart, even just sometimes laughing, is good medicine to you and to others. Our spirit dries up the bones, not only your bones, but the bones of others. Just as you can use your mouth, you can use your whole being to affect the people around you. How do you want to do that? Okay, 23. The wicked accepts a bribe in secret 
to pervert the ways of justice, an idea we've seen multiple times before. I don't even think I'll address it. 24, the discerning sets his face toward wisdom. The eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. I think that this is a similar sentiment to what I expressed just a few moments ago, that the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. That is to say, all the fool can see is this world. That's his horizon. As we become wise in Christ, our horizon stretches way beyond this world. This world's a night in a bad hotel. Live it well. It's going to be over real soon. Put up with it. It's going to be over real soon. Weeping remains for a night. Rejoicing comes in the morning. What is death? Checking out of this Hotel California. <laughs> what, what is death? I'm checking out of this rat-infested place. I'm out of here. Had some laughs. Did some cleaning. And now it's time to check out and go enjoy, uh, go enjoy paradise. So don't lose sight of what this world is and its limitations. And your heart can be restored to a sense of joy. And, and your heart is enlarged because... A fool just sees this world, and as he sees this world, his soul shrinks. As you see beyond this world, your soul is enlarged. You embrace a a huger picture, a huger reality of what is objectively true. God, God has created an entire cosmos, an entire future for all of us to enjoy. So start living for that now. That's what Jesus puts so much more eloquently than I do when he says, Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That is to say, if you're going to be investing and storing, you spend way less time thinking about it in this life than you think about it for the next life. It's essentially what he's saying. Let your, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Is your heart in this life, or is your heart in the next life? If your heart's in the next life, your treasure's all there, then all of this is, ah, who cares? Put up with it. Laugh at it. Conquer it. Suffer it. Whatever God calls you to. doesn't harm you. Okay, that's uh, maybe all I have to say about that. And like, as I mentioned clumsily at the beginning of the class, that's the end of the section that begins back at 1520. And this section, again, just all of this is very loose, um, but loosely titled Advice to a Wise Son. At, a, uh, at, at 1725, we begin a new section, which is going to take us another mm, two chapters-ish. And that's going to be um, a foolish son avoiding fools and foolishness. So the grammatical marker for this trans, you know, proposed transition, proposed new section, is, are these words, a foolish son. So not having had that expression before, that's used as a marker to denote a new section. All right, any thoughts on, that, on wrapping that up? I'm going to take advantage. Let's keep going. Pedal to the metal. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. So true. So true. Even when they move out. I got to keep telling myself that. Even when they move out, you know, you don't stop being their parent. That's the thing. So if they're wise, that's to your blessing. If they're fools, that's going to be a problem. And it's a problem you've got to navigate. You know, again, as I mentioned, we're in this um, we're in this age of apostasy, and so our our kids are leaving the church and not wanting to come back and not taking their faith seriously. We want to address that. We want to engage that. 
It's art, not science. You have the relationship with them. Nobody can tell you exactly what you can say and not say. But you do want to say. You do want to engage. Because you love them. And you don't want them to remain in foolishness. So that's a lot of our, a lot of our ministry and a lot of our evangelism is as simple as our own family and our own extended family. And don't be afraid, don't be afraid to say things. You're not going to regret I mean, even if you come to regret it in this life, you're not going to regret it in that which is to come. Nobody ever says in heaven, oh, I wish I tried less to help that person. All right, so a foolish son is grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. And obviously, what does that mean? Don't be a foolish son. Don't be a foolish daughter. Don't grieve your parents or embitter them. Fourth commandment stuff. And then 26, to impose a fine on a righteous man is not good. Nor to strike the noble for their uprightness. When I hear that last line, I can't help but think of Christ who spoke the truth. And the high priest's servant struck him in the face. Do you remember that? For speaking the truth. So, nor strike the noble for their uprightness. So what is this saying? Don't punish good and reward evil. Don't punish, impose a fine on a good man, a righteous man. That is not good. Nor strike the noble for the very reason that they're upright, truthful, straight shooting. So this idea of uh, returning um, evil for good is in view here. All right, 27, whoever restrains his words has knowledge. And that has to do, again, with this idea of slowing down and being careful, considering, being thoughtful before we open our mouth. That's the challenge. Or before we go about the doing, have a plan in place. And, of course, that takes its ultimate expression in terms of you know, Christianity and living as Christians unto other people trying to further people to heaven is what I'm going to say or do going to help or hinder that good filters to have in place so whoever restrains his words has knowledge and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding so as opposed to hot tempered cool spirit So these are things to pray for, things to aspire toward. If you've been blessed with this already, things to give thanks to God for. But they tend to not come naturally. You know, a cool spirit tends to not be how most people are born. Even if you're not hot-tempered per se, our patience runs uh, very thin very quick. So uh, to pray for this and exercise ourselves in this and strive to have a cool spirit, um, not a hot temper to know when it's time to be angry, when it's time to be wrathful when it's time to hate, all of those are Christian virtues but just as God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love so also we want to be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love alright 28 even a fool who keeps Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Such a great line. 
I think that's how I got through high school. Keep quiet. No one will realize you don't know anything. <laughs> Great practical advice, but... Uh, yeah, it's you know, and I think I think the goal here would be too, like, hey, you realize you're over your head in a conversation, like just really practically. Even in theology, it's like this all the time. Everybody thinks they're experts in everything, though. Isn't that how we are? You know, you've been cooking for 15 minutes and you're ready to correct a chef. You know, <laughs> been looking at your car for hoping that under the hood is a big button that's just you know somehow kind of needs to get pushed and then it'll all be better. So I, we're, we're like this in all aspects of life. I mean, theology is no different. We all assume we know everything there is to know about everything. So um, instead, to, keep si- to recognize when we're in over our heads, to keep silent. And then that silence is not just for the, <laughs> just for the sake of keeping our foolishness to ourselves. Well, that silence then also implicitly means you're going to be listening. You're going to be listening to what the wise actually have to say and learning from them. And you can do the embarrassing part of disagreeing with that all quietly in your mind as you wrestle through it and realize how wrong you were. And you can save a lot of face. This is great practical advice. Behind this was sort of the old German adage that children, especially children at the dinner table, are to be seen and not heard. (laughs) Now, I think we all would maybe see that as a little bit draconian. The truth there is that children need to be quiet and learn, not jibber-jabber away about whatever nonsense they think the rest of the adults have to condescend to and entertain. So there is a kind of wisdom there. I'm not advising we be iron-fisted about this by any stretch. We've got to have fun and joy, and that's what a lot of the kids do for us, you know. But at the same time, to teach our kiddos, hey, you're in over your head on this one. How about if you listen instead of speaking? That's a, that's a good thing to do. All right, well, that would make the break at chapter 18 arbitrary, as so many of the chapter breaks in the scriptures are. But let's use it. Let's see if you have any comments, questions. There's one all the way in the back. I think so. Yeah, I think so. So as you chew on and meditate on a proverb, on this proverb or on any of them, I think the kind of meditation that you're having and the kind of conclusion that you're, or, or the point that you're raising is very good. So I think what this proverb is inviting is for us to, and, and this, is a, this is not a common thing among the proverbs, but to see, to, it's inviting us to humble ourselves in this specific instance and realize that in some aspects of life we may well be foolish or ignorant. So what is that? I mean, the irony here is what? In that recognition, you're already exhibiting wisdom. I'm wise enough to know that at least in this conversation, I'm a fool. I'm going to keep... Oh, this happened to me just the other day. Someone in our congregation, I won't dox you, said, um, said Pastor Rody, what kind of art do you like? And it's like, I, I don't have any sophistication there. It's like asking a seven-year-old what kind of food they like. Chicken nuggets, <laughs> hot dogs. I mean, that's like the equivalent of what my answer would be. Okay, so I'm wise enough to know I'm foolish. And so I brought that up as an analogy and said, I'm not going to, you know, I like what I like. I, you know, that's <laughs> no more sophisticated than that. Uh, so I think that that's a, a kind of like example where we recognize foolishness in ourselves 
best to be humble about it and zip up and learn something. Uh, that's yeah, that's the way we really grow through all of life. So. Yeah, so the, wis- the wisdom of recognizing where you might be foolish and then not... So understanding that foolishness is both simultaneously contagious <laughs> and annoying. And so if you keep quiet, you don't spread the contagion and you're also not annoying to those who are wise... And so I think it is inviting the wise to recognize that at times we're fools and what should we do? Zip it and listen. That, the old adage that God gave you one mouth and two ears for a reason? <laughs> or as the scriptures themselves put it, to be slow to speak and quick to listen or quick to hear. Yeah, And I think that that sentiment at least ties in again with uh, 27, the proverb immediately preceding whoever restrains his words has knowledge an efficiency of speech a carefulness with speech an intentionality with speech and recognizing if you don't know anything it's better to be quiet than to spread foolishness or irritate the wise okay we'll have to leave it there the lord be with you